0: Hi, welcome to the New Covenant Presbyterian Church Sermon Podcast, a congregation of the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, the OPC, in the San Francisco Bay Area. What does the Bible say about the Atonement? This is part four in our series looking at this particular question. Uh, I think I said initially that it would be five parts. It looks like it's probably going to be six parts. And so um, here in parts four and five, we're going to be looking at the, the two things that are uh, really distinctive about the reform view of the atonement, that it is penal and substitutionary. So we think of the the reform view of the atonement, we think of it being penal and substitutionary, the penal substitutionary atonement. Now, substitutionary itself is not really re, uh, new in any ways. Uh, we we uh, looked uh, earlier at Anselm's view of satisfaction, and his view was fully substitutionary. So Uh, That part's not new. Uh, Even the the penal element is not really completely new, but um, the penal element of salvation was emphasized greatly and developed uh, um, and came to maturity in the Reformation. And so it's fitting that that would also be the time when that part of the atonement is also going to be emphasized more. And so we have um, these two two parts of the atonement. It is penal and it is substitutionary. Uh, We looked in part one, if you were with us, at uh, the objective versus subjective views of the atonement, we saw that Christ's death must be objective. It must provide an objective atonement. In part two, we looked at the relationship between the incarnation and the atonement. We saw that the reason why the incarnation was necessary is because of the atonement. The, The atonement necessitates an incarnation because the only way that man could have his sins atoned for is if God himself dies on the cross. There's no other way to be saved. Then in part 3 we looked at the difference between propitiation and expiation which really are the two parts of an atonement if you want to if you want to see uh, or to to ask you know what what is it that actually makes something an atonement it is propitiation and expiation we saw how propitiation is the satisfaction of God's wrath and expiation is cleansing from our sins we saw also that the 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 propitiation is seen predominantly in the burnt offering where the whole animal is consumed and turned into a pleasing aroma which goes up to god he smells it and then his wrath is turned aside with regard to expiation we saw that it was connected to uh, the sin offering and we saw that this is related to the cleansing that we have in in the blood of christ now one of the things i neglected to point out is with regard to the to the to the levitical system is that with regard to the sin offering the thing that is distinctive about the sin offering is the manipulation of blood the sprinkling of the blood um, and this is seen particularly in the Day of Atonement. So on the Day of Atonement, there would be uh, there were really three sin offerings that were made and two burnt offerings. Uh, and the, the, uh, most of the, the, the narrative in Leviticus 16 has to do with the sin offering itself. And there's all kinds of things that must be done, the sending away of the, uh, the, uh, the scapegoat, so to speak, there is the, the killing of the one for the, the sin offering for the people, the sin offering for the high priest. There is a sprinkling of everything with blood everywhere, uh, so it seems. But the idea of, of the sprinkling of all things is that um, all those things must be cleansed and they are cleansed by the sprinkling of the blood. And this is the picture of what expiation is. And again, we saw that this is fulfilled with the Lord Jesus Christ, as explained in Hebrews chapter 9, where we have uh, the sprinkling of Christ's blood uh, cleansing us from our sins. And so those are, those are the three parts that we have done to this point. And now we're going to look at the uh, penal nature of the atonement. Um, so now we're not looking at the parts of the atonement, what makes it the atonement, but what's the nature of it? What is it, what, what is it accomplished in this regard? And, and the nature of the atonement is to be penal. Now, there's a lot of ways in which we can think about this, uh, but one of them is very simply that this is simply uh, the thing that is needed for us to be saved from our sins. Uh, God's wrath is on us. We think of Romans chapter 1. God has revealed His wrath against mankind, and therefore there is a need for an atonement, wherein God will no longer be angry with us, and in being then pleased with us, He will declare us to be righteous. Anything less than that is not going to be what we need. We we have to be declared righteous in order uh, to to uh, be admitted to heaven on the last day to have eternal life. And this is even the logic that Paul uses. So we we have the explanation of sin, Romans one through most of, of three. And then the first thing that Paul then does when he gets to the description of of uh, our salvation, our justification by faith, is he then describes it in terms of Christ making an atonement for sins. So uh, in Romans 3, 23, for all of sinned and fall short of the glory of God, then in verse 24, and are justified, that is declared to be righteous, as we, we've talked about in other posts. Declared to be righteous by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. So the idea there is is that Christ is a propitiation that God himself put forward. And in putting him forward, then we are uh, legally declared to be righteous because the sins are atoned for. Therefore, God is able to declare us to be righteous. Our sins have been cleansed. And, we're no, and he's no longer angry with us because his wrath has been satisfied. Therefore, he's able to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us and, and to to declare us even to be righteous. The fact that this is legal is seen uh, not only in that verse, but even moving forward. Uh, as the Apostle Paul says, uh, it was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. All these are legal terms. Um, he, he demonstrates his righteousness in putting the lord jesus christ forward so that he can be just in justifying the sinner his declaration of them being righteous is just is a just action from a just judge because of the redemption that is found in the lord jesus christ through his blood he can therefore be the justifier of the one who has faith in jesus even though the one he is justifying is in fact a sinner uh, that's that's what the apostle paul is saying so the the atonement, then, has legal ramifications. That's the that's the point. Um, you can be declared righteous only because of this atonement. And uh, the atonement, uh, in this sense, is, is penal. It's penal in the sense that Christ paid the legal penalty for your sins. He pays the legal penalty such that God can then forgive you and declare you righteous. We see the same thing in Romans chapter 5, as the Apostle Paul uh, continues to speak about the significance of of Christ and his death and here in Romans chapter 5 and particularly thinking about the second half of Romans 5 uh, there is this comparison between Adam and Christ there is this uh, Adam typology that is developed and the idea there is is that uh, with Adam and his sin it led to condemnation condemnation is a legal term but with uh, with Christ Christ's one act of obedience which is seen predominantly in his death has led to justification. So the idea here is that Christ's actions with regard to the atonement uh, lead to uh, the declaration of righteousness for those who are previously sinners. And therefore, the atonement is itself penal. Christ has taken our legal place before God. He's paid the penalty that we deserved to receive. And because of that, we then are able to receive. Uh, to receive his righteousness. Another place where we see this is particularly in Galatians chapter three. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. The curse of the law. The law is has a penalty that it requires if you break it. And that puts you under the curse of God. That would be the curse of the law. Christ takes our place as that curse, the curse of the law, pays the penalty, the legal penalty, that we owed, uh, that that we should have paid to God, uh, otherwise, and because of that, our sins are forgiven, and so this is the uh, the the penal nature of the atonement. It's also seen very clearly in 2 Corinthians 5:21, classic text about the the double uh, double imputation of Christ, wherein uh, our sins are imputed to Christ, and Christ's righteousness is imputed to us. Uh, There, uh, that text says, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So notice in that text, uh, God made him who knew no sin. So so Christ is not a sinner. To be sin for us. Now, what is the sense in which Christ is sin for us? It certainly cannot be the sense that uh, in that he himself sinned because the, the text has just said that he's sinless. And the, the New Testament everywhere says that the Lord Jesus Christ is sinless. So when it says that he is sin for us, it doesn't mean that he have, has sinned. That's not what it means when it says that he is sinned for us. Rather, it means that he has stood in our place uh, as if he were a sinner. He's taking the penalty of a sinner, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Now, insofar as Christ, though sinless, was made sin for us, and that necessitates an understanding of being made sin Um, That necessitates an understanding of imputation, not that he actually sinned, but that he was representing us and paying the penalty for our sins. Then also, that verse also must mean that in the parallel term, that us being made into the righteousness of God doesn't mean that, that God makes us righteous so as to do right things. So that does happen, and there are texts even that prove that. But what it means in that context is that we are declared to be righteous. We have Christ's righteousness imputed to us. We have the righteousness of God. We become the righteousness of God in Christ because he became sin for us. And he became sin in the same way in which we become righteous. And that is by imputation. Christ never sins. Uh, that's not what that's talking about. It must be by imputation. Therefore, our righteousness also comes by way of imputation. And so this is then what, what's happening on the cross. Christ is made sin for us. He has made sin in the legal sense, which means that the substitutionary atonement of Christ is, in fact, penal. The propitiation, the expiation that he made, the atonement that he made, uh, is itself a, a penal uh, 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 atonement. He paid the penalty for our sins that we might be saved. That penalty which he paid it was an infinite penalty that we could not pay ourselves, and therefore we needed the eternal Son of God to pay it, uh, which he did and therefore, the, the great blessing of the gospel is that uh, if you turn to the Lord Jesus Christ, if you submit yourself to him, you repent of your sins, your sins will be atoned for. The penalty is paid in Christ. The blood is put up on the doorpost and the angel of death passes over. This is the, the penal uh, atonement of the Lord Jesus Christ. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to find out more about our church, you can visit our website at newcovenantopc.com. You can also follow us on YouTube, Facebook, and Instagram. If you've benefited from this ministry and want to know of ways you can help or support it, we'd like to make you aware of our new capital campaign to build a new building. God has recently blessed us with growth here at New Covenant. Over the years, our church has been small. It's gone up and down, but overall things have been tight financially and the church has been small. Now, by the grace of God, we are growing. And we believe it wise in light of this to think about building a new building to facilitate even more growth. Our current building only seats 72. We cannot fit any more seats and if we were to fill every single one, every Lord's Day we would have no more than 72. The plans for our new building would more than double the capacity and enable us to grow to a point where we can be stable financially and even be able to help other churches. One of the things that we want to, to be is a church that is able to look beyond itself for the sake of the advancement of the kingdom of God. We believe that this new building can help us get there. And so we are praying that God would provide for us the funds needed to build a new building, that we would grow to fill it, and that one day we would even be able to plant a church ourselves. As you know, doing ministry here in the Bay Area, this is a very dark place. Uh, There is a great need for the light of the gospel to shine particularly in this place uh, through the preaching of the word. And so if you want to support us and to, to support our efforts to see this new building built, please consider giving a financial gift to this end. You can give by sending us a check with building fund in the memo line. Our address can be found on our website. You can also give by Zelle by sending the money to nc.opcssf.treasurer at gmail.com with building fund in the memo line. May God bless you with a greater knowledge of his word and zeal for his name.